Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Backstage Gaming, dramatic takes on your favorite games. I'm Chris. And I'm Dylan. And we're here a little bit later than usual this week. Thank you for your patience, but we're getting one out in the week that we're supposed to. Damn it, we're keeping the streak going. What do you want from (laughs) us? Uh, But yeah, this past weekend, I was at a friend's wedding and and life life things were happening and we weren't able to get together. But we're getting together now to bring you uh, a little bit of a shorter episode just to keep the streak alive. Uh, and I'm very excited because I don't really know where this is going to go. Dylan, what was it you wanted to bring to the table today? Yes. Um, so the uh, the subject of today will be uh, we'll, we'll be discussing games that take place in one centralized location. I, when I originally pitched this to Chris, I was saying RPGs that take place in like one town. But I think we can broaden that a little bit. Yeah, and and, and I plan to, but I would... Dylan sent me this message. I was like, oh, hell yeah, a bottle episode episode. Uh, yes. Because I think this is a really interesting concept. Bottle episode, if you're not familiar with the term, uh, if you've ever watched like an old sci fi TV show like old Star Trek or even old Doctor Who, and you see an episode where they're just kind of in like one place for the whole time, like an episode where they don't really leave the TARDIS, that's a bottle episode. Uh, usually they're indicative of like, you know, You see it a lot with older, lower-budget TV, but also, like, there are some really good bottle films, like uh, 10 Cloverfield Lane is a really good example of, like, a bottle script, uh, in that it it basically all takes place in one house outside of, you know, a couple of scenes, and they use that to great effect. And uh, I'm excited to see what we come up with for games with this, because I've got one idea that I think is going to throw Dylan for a bit of a loop, but I'm excited to hear what kind of brought this to your mind. Yeah, so this actually started with um, the Etrian Odyssey games, which I, I have been getting into. I know next to nothing about these. Yeah, uh, they're, they're a little niche, you know, oh, they're, they're kind of obscure, you've probably never heard of them. <laughs> <laughs> but no, uh, the Etrian Odyssey series of games is a series of dungeon-crawling Japanese RPGs for the DS and 3DS. And oh, are they these are... the ones where you have to like draw your own map? Oh yeah. Oh okay, yeah. I have there. heard of the I looked at I looked it up and the visuals like triggered something in my memory. I remember hearing about these and thinking they sounded rad, but I didn't have my own DS. Yeah. Very distinct art style. Yeah. So yeah, the the central conceit of Etrian Odyssey and 
you know, some of these games, I believe, have more than just one town. Um, but the central conceit is that there is a giant labyrinth that opens up near the town that the game is based in. So, you know, adventurer guilds open up and they explore the labyrinth. It's a very simple, straightforward premise. It's uh, certainly as like on the, the scale of JRPG plots. I'm not going to say they're non-existent because like there there is plot but it's it's more about like npcs and just kind of the the flavor of you exploring this dungeon more so than any greater character drama in fact in etrian odyssey you you pre-roll your party um you pick everything from like their gender to their appearance to uh what class they are really really old school it's kind of meant to be a throwback to uh the old wizardry games from the 80s and 90s and so the reason why I brought them up is because the the Etrian Odyssey game that I have started the series with, um, Etrian Odyssey Untold 2, which is a remake of the second game for the 3DS. It's it's very interesting how um they kind of flavor the journey. Uh because okay. when, when I think dungeon crawler in a game, Chris, I, I think of like Darkest Dungeon, right? I think of yeah. Ultima Underworld. I think of you know, even uh, to use a Japanese RPG as an example, Shining in the Darkness for the Sega Genesis, very classical knight sword and sorcery, um, maybe a little bit on the darker side because the, the dungeon is supposed to be this terrifying thing that only the bravest adventurers can, you know, brave. Yeah, and I mean, like, that that kind of ties to, like, the roots of that genre. And, like, you know, I don't want to speak too broadly on this because it's, it's not, like, everything stems back to this, but a lot of, like, the trappings of the dungeon crawler have their roots in things like, you know, old-school TTRPG, like, D&D modules that were right. meant to be, like, kind of dark and punishing and harrowing. Absolutely. But the the thing about, uh, at least the dungeon crawlers I've played, with, like, maybe the exception of Vagrant Story, a lot of dungeon crawlers, you regularly, you know, you you push a little bit further. Um, you go down a couple more floors than maybe you did in your previous journey, but you always come back up to the surface. At least, like, you know, in the games I've played. I know Ultima Underworld doesn't... Oh, wait, maybe it does? Uh, I think the second one has, like, a town for you to explore at the start, but I, I think the first one doesn't. But, um... Very rarely is it you are in this dungeon and you have to explore it and you cannot come out for air. Like, they're not as oppressive as, like, the flavor wants you to believe them to be, with the exception of maybe Darkest Dungeon, but that's, you know, I haven't actually played that game. Uh, just very oppressive atmosphere. Oh, you should. It's very fun. Art style and aesthetic and all that. Yeah, I know. It, it's it's on the list. I think when I was watching you play, I, I just got, like, really scared because I'm like, man, that looks... Like, too many things for me to juggle. But you know what? I'd probably love it. Who am I yeah, it, it has a bit of a learning curve, but it, it is, it's a fun juggling act once you kind of get a feel for it. But anyway, mm -hmm. continue with Etrian Odyssey. So, yeah, um, I guess what I, what I really liked about specifically Etrian Odyssey Untold 2, but uh, what I believe extends to the rest of the series, is that the dungeon in flavor kind of feels like a tourist attraction. Like, okay. and I'll, I'll explain what I mean by that. Um... So, a lot of adventurers, explorers, dungeoneers, uh, they, they all go, come to this town to explore the dungeon and find whatever, like, riches lie within. And so, that kind of creates this culture in the town of, 
these adventurers and explorers are the town's livelihood. So rather than, you know, th- this like sickly, like, oh, this great evil is emanating from the dungeon. It's really just kind of like, oh, hi, your adventure is high. You can stay at my inn. We we cooked dinners. Like, it, it feels almost like a resort <laughs> town. I have the finest weapons this side of the river. <laughs> exactly. It, 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 it feels like a resort town. I think it's the best way for me to put, uh, put That's it. That's delightful. Like, I love that. You you go to the tavern to accept side quests where like someone will be like, I need this many of this vegetable that only grows on this floor or whatever. And so, you know, you are exploring this deadly dungeon and the game never pretends that the dungeon isn't deadly. But there, there's such a blasé, relaxed vibe going on outside of the dungeon. And even in Etrian Odyssey 2 specifically, like, um, all the dungeons are forest themed and they're all they're themed after like the the different seasons it it really feels like you're, you're exploring the the first main trying to remember what the different sections are called i guess it's, it's not that important uh stratum you're exploring the first stratum of the dungeon and it's just it's like a walk through the park except the deer can kill you so don't get <laughs> so be just careful. like real life <laughs> exactly yeah, you, you're talking to townspeople, you're helping them with, like, kind of menial tasks, like, oh, when I was back in my adventuring days, I stopped by this location with my wife, if only I could travel there one more time, you know, just, like, little stuff like that. And you, uh, there's actually, like, a, a restaurant, there's, there's, a, there's a city building um, element to it in this game, and you also have, like, a restaurant that you can find recipes uh for and use the ingredients that you find in the dungeon to create new dishes and you can sell those oh, dishes delightful. to various uh districts across town um and there's this whole city building mechanic there um and it's it's just it's completely unlike anything I've ever played it's really weird how how simple the reframing is but how much more relaxed it makes the act of dungeon crawling feel like I can still die but it doesn't, the, the atmosphere is not as oppressive. Yeah, and I think that that is the, like, one of the biggest benefits a game that really focuses on a sense of, like, place and familiarity in a way that a game with, like, a pretty small core area to explore, like we're talking about, can. It, it gives you something to latch onto. It gives you, mm-hmm. like, for lack of a better word, like, a normal to care mm-hmm. about that makes that can like help ground you as more challenging things come up or as you like, I don't know much about this game, but I imagine that as you delve deeper into the dungeon, shit gets wilder. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And so having like, even if it's just your restaurant back in town that you are like kind of caring for, it's it honestly, what you're saying now kind of reminds me of the way that like in Hades, the return Mm. to the house of Hades either when you succeed at or fail a run and the fact that you can like wander around and talk to people and further relationships there really like for me was one of the big kind of hooks that that game got in me is just that little extra layer of like no matter how the run goes I'm gonna go back I'm gonna get a new snippet of story maybe I'll be able to like give another present to one of the NPCs and see more of their storyline yeah, I just I really like the way that gonna flirt with Megara, yeah, and Dusa, and Thanatos, <laughs> and Dusa. all these flirt characters with everyone. for smooching. Not Dusa though. There's so many. Um, but yeah, it <laughs> anyway. it just it 
it really adds a nice layer of like like an emotional core, I guess, to what would otherwise be like a pretty straightforward go out into the dungeon and try to get out roguelite. Uh, right. And it sounds like that's a lot of what Etrian Odyssey was kind of doing for you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I've learned that Etrian Odyssey 3 apparently takes place in a port, so that uh, that resort town vibe is only stronger there. Oh, hell yeah. Uh, so I'm, I'm excited to, to get around to that one uh, next. Very, very cool. Can I pivot to uh, a different strength of games that structure themselves like this with a uh, decidedly not RPG example? You know what? Yeah, uh, I, might, I might spin it back to a couple RPGs. Oh, for sure. And I, I, this was just the, the game that this idea made me think of almost immediately was Grim Fandango. Oh, really? Yeah. So Grim Fandango, if, if you are not aware, is a classic of the point-and-click adventure game genre. It was released in 98 by Lucas, Lucasfilm Games, who made like so many of the best point-and-click adventure games of that era, designed primarily by Tim Schafer, who went on to make Psychonauts and Brutal Legends. But Grim Fandango, you play a Grim Reaper who is trying to... He is a Grim Reaper as part of his, like, court-appointed purgatory sentence uh, so that he can earn up enough karma to go on to, like, the proper afterlife. And the way that it's structured is basically three different bottle episodes, uh, three different bottle games, where Act 1, you are exploring the, the City of the Dead, Act 2 is a little bit later on board the, like, cruise liner taking him from the City of the Dead to the next step of the afterlife, and Act 3 is exploring that then next step of the afterlife, which I believe, if I'm remembering correctly, is like a casino. Uh, I could be misremembering that. It's been a very long time since I've played more than, like, a snippet of the game. I remember there um, being a casino. I don't remember. I think that I think that's the third area you, you yeah explore. if it's not the third then the boat is also a casino which would not be out of place uh mm-hmm. but it does what what it does with this i think that makes it work so well is like each of these acts is you know sizable there's a fair amount to wander around and explore but it is very much a self-contained area and this being a point-and-click adventure game most of the gameplay loop is you wandering around exploring these interconnected uh, screens, having conversations, following dialogue trees, and trying to piece together based on what you're able to find and what the people around you are talking to you about, what you need to do for who and what you need to get for who to, you know, get the next thing that you can do for the next person until you're able to, like, kind of fill in your checklist of tasks. And by virtue of... There are some point-and-click adventure games, like uh, Monkey Island is a great example, where, like... Mm -hmm. You're on an island. You're on Monkey Island. And as you play through the game, the explorable region gets bigger and bigger and bigger uh, as you, you know, unlock paths and open doors and and gain more and more ability to explore the island, Mm -hmm. Um, which is great. And like it feels it gives you almost the same sort of feeling that like opening up more paths in like a, a Metroidvania style game gives like that's the kind of engagement loop. Yeah, my my go-to example is uh like the the first two Resident Evil games. Um Yeah, that's another really great kind of touchstone there. Mm-hmm. But the the downside of that is that especially in a game in a point-and-click adventure game where so much of it is like 
find thing, remember where thing needs to be put or who wanted thing, and go take thing to person, you get a side effect where the bigger your explorable area gets, the more you have to hold in your memory, and the, le- the more likely you are to, you know, not have it come to you right away who wanted, you know, that golden orb that you just found in the temple, and which of the, you know, dozens of screens that you have explored at this point you need to go back to to find that person. And so the way that Grim Fandango breaks itself off completely into these three still, you know, sizable, explorable, fun to wander around and find weird things, but like wholly disconnected levels, essentially, really lets you get like a fine understanding of where everything is, how everything interconnects, and just like kind of takes that little bit of extra mental load off the top so that it can, you know, make the dialogue trees just a little bit more interesting and make the the puzzles and who needs what and how the items kind of fit together that littlest bit more, you know, I'm going to say challenging. What I mean is moon logic, but, you know, it's a point and click <laughs> adventure game. It's not perfect. Uh, but like that, I think that that decision is really smart because it just makes it that much easier for you to hold everything in your brain at once in a way that, you know, I love the Monkey Island games. Those are games where, you know, you need a walkthrough. At a certain point, it gets a little dizzying. Um, like, I, I really need to beat the first one. Oh, it's so good. Because I, I, I made it like halfway through. Like, I, I don't judge people for using walkthroughs for any kind of game. Uh, mm. If you tell me you get through like a Monkey Island game or a Grin Fandango without opening a walkthrough once... You are a, you are more impressive than me. Like that's that's a feat. <laughs> your your powers of patience astound me. Yeah. Um, but again, I think that Grim Fandango's decision to kind of partition itself into these three separate, smaller, more digestible zones helps with that. Mm-hmm. I still use a walkthrough most of the. I, I like I still used a walkthrough last time I played all the way through it, but I didn't feel like I needed one as frequently as I often do with that era of uh, point right, clickers. You're able to keep it a little bit. Honestly, um, for for what it's worth, I thought the first Monkey Island was uh, easier, or what I played of the first Monkey Island I thought was easier than what I played of Grim Fandango, but maybe that's just me. That's very fair. It's been, God, I haven't touched Monkey Island in far longer than I haven't touched Grim Fandango. I need to, ah, that's fair. I need to replay those games and then play the new one. I, I need to replay both of them, and I, yeah, I need to replay uh, the first, I need to finish the first monkey island so i can play the second monkey island so i can play return to monkey island yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh but yeah that was that was the main thing that popped into my head uh along this topic and now we'll return to the realm of rpgs and i will continue to be amazed <laughs> hi i'm daniel founder of pretty litter did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain i learned this the hard way after losing my cat gingy so i created pretty litter a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This one's more or less in the same flavor as Etrian Odyssey, so I'm not going to spend too long on it. But, um, Persona. Yeah. 
I I had a that's feeling what, this was going to come up yeah, as a as a that's, baby that's Persona what the player. Kids like the kids like Persona, right? Kids just love removing demons from people's minds. <laughs> that's what all the kids um, are into. So yeah, um, Persona Three came out in two thousand five or two thousand six. I think it was the latter, and it did this cool thing where there's a calendar system, and so. You know, it's it's kind of similar to Etrian Odyssey, where, like, there's a town around the singular dungeon, but with the additional thing of you have so many actions in the game that you can do before you run out of time, and you either explored enough of the dungeon and leveled up enough to uh, deal with whatever event happens every month, or you didn't, and you might need to... I, I, I think Persona 4 is the one that introduced the ability to roll back a week if you're if you put yourself in a position you can't get out of. But I would need to test that in Persona 3. But anyway, so, yeah, uh, Persona 3 kind of introduced this new formula and um, Atlas has been rolling with that ever since for Persona 4 and 5. The reason why I wanted to bring it up is that unlike unlike Etrian Odyssey, which kind of the town it creates is it feels more like a resort town that you're staying at for business. The towns in the Persona series of games really kind of become your home after a while. Um, you're shacking up. Well, I guess in uh, in Persona Three, you're at, you're in a dorm room, but in Persona Four and Five, like you have like you're you're staying with like a legal guardian or whatever the hell you call Sojuro in Persona Five. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh yeah you you get to uh learn about the the town around you and you you get to talk to npcs and many of those npcs become people you can befriend and develop a tighter social bond with that gives you various uh in-game benefits so the demons you summon are stronger <laughs> also true um they're not demons chris they're personas come on now where no i i I knew this was going to come up because, as as you know, Dylan, I've been playing through Persona three or Persona four uh-huh. uh, for the first time. Yeah, and so and I, I did kind of want to pick your brain about uh, your time in Inaba. Yeah, it's it's fascinating because it is such a combination. Like in a very real way, it feels like moving to a new city or a new neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Like kudos to the developers who you know on PlayStation two hardware made this these areas feel very lived in or at least you know by the stand as as lived in as you can with as few character models walking around as you can right right but like there is a real sense of like this is a a place with that like follows geographical rules and you need it doesn't tell you where things are mm-hmm. like You'll learn, you know, there was a point early on where someone was like, yeah, you know, there, there, you can go downtown and buy these things. And I was like, okay, which storefront? And I had to, like, go door to door and figure out where the, the item shop was. And there's a little bit of friction there that, like, you know, there are plenty of games that would quality of life that out. And that's a perfectly reasonable thing to do in development. But, like, it does add a certain level of, like role play and not to use a fucking SAT word, but like verisimilitude to the whole thing. Mm -hmm. Like the fact that you as a player need to learn the geography of this place and, you know, you have to learn what the schedule of events are and you need to, you know, in, in persona four, 
uh, the sort of top countdown that you get before you need to have completed the next chunk of the dungeon is like, you need to do it by the next time it's foggy. And to know when it's going to be foggy, you have to keep an eye on the weather report. And like, there, there's all of these little things that go into making, you know, the, the little town of Inaba feel like a real place that mm-hmm. you are interfacing with. And I think it's absolutely fascinating. And yeah, and I will say that uh, as far as like the Persona games go, like Persona 4 is the only one that takes place in a more rural uh, backwoods town because, um, you know, uh, Persona 3 takes place on uh, I think it's called Tatsumi Port Island, which is where this big private school is. And it's near like this, you know, shopping center, uh, multi-tiered uh, restaurant location like there, there's a lot of um it feels more uh metropolitan by comparison yeah yeah i, I feel like inaba has this uh kind of intimate feel to it uh where everything's in walking distance um as you're walking through the shopping center you will meet more uh both playable characters and npcs who own uh their families own the various businesses yeah there, there's something like and i think both both approaches have their strengths and strengths and weaknesses um persona 5 kind of follows persona 3 a bit more closely um in that regard because yeah, isn't persona 5 mostly in like oh it's, is... it's basically tokyo i think it's tokyo and then you can go to like the various districts of tokyo uh to take people on dates and stuff like that but yeah and i i think that the again what i played of persona 5 back when we lived together and what i'm now play what i have now played of persona 4 it really like there's a lot that goes into it and the the kind of enclosed here are the five areas you can explore uh aspect goes a long way to this but like add that to you know the calendar system that they use where like you know the game lasts an in-game year and you mm-hmm. have to you know use your time and there's all of these little decisions that they they put in that make the decisions you make feel very like simultaneously very mundane and very impactful. Yeah, I think there's there's something special about having to memorize the schedule, uh, not yeah. just like the schedule you're planning for yourself, but also like some characters are only available on these days and clubs are only available on these days. And if you yeah. want to work your part time job, that's on these days. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just thinking of that tweet I saw you about the person who. <laughs> Whose boyfriend was doing a uh, an American Psycho run of Persona Five, <laughs> where all they did was talk to romanceable characters and do push-ups. <laughs> Which uh, I responded to you there, and I will respond to you here. Um, Patrick Bateman knows how to fucking shower, so maybe maybe throw Joker <laughs> into the bath every once in a while. Once in a while off. would be nice. <laughs> Especially with all those goddamn push-ups he's doing. <laughs> Fuck, man. But yeah, I, okay, so... Yeah, th- this was in part uh, just the, your uh, Persona 4 check-in. Just seeing how you're doing. Yeah, I, um, I've not played a ton more of it because I've, I've been a little bit on the busy end. But life is hectic, I, I got you. I'm, I'm excited to get back into it. I have completed the first like mainline dungeon and rescued uh yukiko yukiko thank you i could not yeah. remember her name no i got you. um i have then been doing some you know slice of life anime bullshit and right. the next the next shoe has yet to drop got you uh chie is still best girl correct all right all right i'll, I'll check back in later <laughs> <laughs> no i mean chie is great i'm just <laughs> I, I just love the quiet like 
We'll see. <laughs> no, I mean, honestly, I, I think I think Chi is going to win your heart, Chris, because she's like the most popular girl for a reason. But anyway, I guess that now would be a good time to uh, to segue into the, the final point I wanted to bring up, which is please a minor point. But also, I think like something about it hits different. So I'm actually going to talk about the Pokemon Stadium games. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay. Um, so, uh, for people who don't know, uh, Pokemon Stadium was a technically a trilogy in Japan, but a, a duology of games that were basically created as a way to. Um, I, I I believe that they were made for uh, competitive play as like a, a different visual indicator for uh, people battling their Pokemon, basically. So you could upload your Pokemon from uh, Pokemon Red, Blue, Yellow, Green, whatever, um, or Gold and Silver in the case of Pokemon Stadium 2. And you could upload your Pokemon and basically uh, it, it, was a way, it was a way to like see them fight in 3D. But in addition to this, uh, the Pokemon Stadium games also had like challenge runs for you to do so you could go to uh challenge various gyms um you could do various tournaments that were themed uh like based on like i think pokemon weight class was one of the categories just like wild stuff like that um and so they're cool on that end um but i i think the thing that i've always loved about these games is their presentation because Pokemon Stadium is not an RPG. Um, I mean, it it uses it's like an expansion for an RPG series of games, but like you're not actually exploring a world. There's not really a story mode, but uh, the menus uh, where you select the different modes um, are framed as a town. And there's something about that framing device that I just think is simply delightful. So I want to talk about it real quick. Absolutely. Um, I. You'll have to take the lead. I have not thought about the... I played so much Pokemon Stadium as a kid. And I have not thought about these games in so long. Yeah, so... um, So why did I bring this up? I guess you are exploring the Pokemon worlds in your Game Boy game. And even if not, even if you just picked up Pokemon Stadium. I think the idea of, like, this is where a bunch of tournaments happen. And uh, if you want, you can go... To the north and play party games like it, it really gives it the feeling of a tournament um like a, a tournament's in place and there's a lot of excitement and there's a lot of community and um it almost feels like a festival kind of I was like, I mean, it, it it gives me like it gives me the same vibe as when i've gone to like conventions or yeah like honestly that's that's the the closest thing like a convention where there's like you know a fighting game tournament or a, a trading card game tournament is like one of the major events. And, but there's all of these like side events and, and other things to do and places to shop and like all of this other stuff. Yeah. And even if like, again, this isn't a space that you can actually explore. It really does kind of color the whole perception. I, I feel like, you know, if it was a more standard menu, um, I wouldn't remember Pokemon Stadium as fondly. There, there is something about like the presentation of these menus where it feels like every place is a is a new location where um you are either 
participating in uh, various mini games that also have a, a vaguely festival theme to them. Um, or, you know, going to the various different stadiums, uh, a lot of which have different models, uh, like for the interior. Um, it, it gives the entire game that is otherwise like a bunch of random disconnected battles with uh, various different stipulations. Uh, it gives them a sense of place. Yeah. Um, and it, it, it it's without like telling a story, it kind of gives the player a story to, to role play. And I don't know. I just I think these games are super cool. Um, I'm tagging They're... it on at the end here because like, I, unfortunately, I don't have a lot to say beyond that. But I think I, I just kind of wanted to start that conversation because yeah, I know I and I, like... I think it's it's a cool thing to bring up because it goes to show like what we're we've been talking a lot about like explorable spaces but really it's a question of presentation having presenting this menu as like a place that you can explore does change the way that you interact with it and the way that you conceptualize it and that is you know that is enough to add a little extra layer of like you know making you think about this game in a slightly different way Mm -hmm. uh what this is making me want to do is go back and replay pokemon coliseum and uh revel in how not very good that game actually is it when i put aside <laughs> my, my nostalgia for it <laughs> listen no chris you want to play pokemon coliseum listen if you want those vibes either play wild arms or play final fantasy 7 <laughs> you don't have wrong. to play you don't have You're to really play really pokemon not coliseum. wrong Listen to the Pokemon Coliseum soundtrack. It is phenomenal. Um, maybe look at some artwork of the game wistfully. You don't actually have to go back yeah. and play it. <laughs> and with that, I think that's about as good, that, that grim warning is about as good a place to sign off as I can think of. Um, uh, yeah, I just just real quick, if I could do yeah, one sure. last thing. before I'm just going to read some of the locations in the two Pokemon uh, Stadium games. Uh, so we have Gym Leader Castle, which I just I think that rules. I that's think that's delightful. a cool thing. To, um, there's the kids club where you can do mini games. There's the stadium where which uh, then takes you to several sub stadiums. Um, in Pokemon Stadium 2, there's Earl's Pokemon Academy, which is a location in uh, Gen 2. Uh, then there's the Game Boy Tower, where uh, if you wanted to, you could play any Pokemon game for the Game Boy Color on uh, on your TV, which I always thought was super neat. Oh, yeah. Um, th I, there's a Pokemon lab in Pokemon Stadium, apparently. I, uh, not really sure what that is, but I don't know. I, I think there's... I, it's just... It's cool. I, I, I get giddy just thinking about it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's genuinely delightful. Just Okay, but yeah, no, we can definitely move on now. I was just looking at the Bulbapedia article, and I'm like, I should, I should say a little bit about this. Absolutely. But yeah, I hope that this, uh, this little amuse-bouche was entertaining for y'all, and I hope, uh, I hope to see some engagement on social media where maybe you tell us about your favorite little bottle episode video games. I, I, I like, I like this kind of stuff. I like when games, I think limits make for cool art a lot of the time mm -hmm. and i want i want more things i can sink my teeth into like this and dylan will tell you exactly how to do that in just a minute but until then thank you so much for listening to backstage gaming i do hope you enjoyed it if you did remember that wherever you're finding us whether you are on the apple podcast service google play 
whatever your podcatcher of choice is, if they have the option to like rate and review, please do that. And maybe tell your friends and family about us. Anybody who you think would be into our particular brand of bullshit. Uh, you can also find out more about our show by going to bsgpod.com. You can also reach out to us directly there uh, using an email form if you want to uh, talk to us about anything pressing. Uh, and otherwise, we are on social media. Hey, Dylan, tell them about that. Alrighty. Um, yeah, if you want to hit us up on social media, you can find us on Facebook and on Twitter, where our handle is at BSG underscore cast. Um, also, if you uh, want to talk to us about Pokemon Stadium or about how bad Pokemon Coliseum... Oh, God, I should be careful. With <laughs> blah, blah. I don't think Pokemon... I do think Pokemon Coliseum is bad. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> But I respect your opinion if you like it. But if you want to tell me I'm wrong, please, I, uh, you know, I'm not going to see it unless I see that hashtag BSG pod. If you at me and don't include the hashtag BSG pod, I will not respond. So, <laughs> so yeah, just, just do that also if you want to. <laughs> Just, just like, I don't, I'm not throwing you a rope. You're going to find your own way out of this hole. <laughs> also, if you want to just, like, say hi or something, I don't know, be, be a friendly human or whatever. <laughs> hey, Dylan, who made our great artwork? You can also use the hashtag BSGPod for that. All right, there. There's the plug. I'm moving on. Period. <laughs> Huge thanks to our friend Brendan French for the key art they have provided our show. If you dig their stuff, you can check them out at their Squarespace, brennan-french.squarespace.com. That is B-R-E-N-N-E-N-French.squarespace.com. You can also find them on Instagram.com slash brennanfrencharts or on their Twitter at brennan underscore French. You should also go check out our friend BioQuery. He's the musician behind our theme song, Dot Sound Radio, Volume 1, Instrumentality. And if you like that music, you'll probably like some more of his music. Uh, you can find more of that by going to soundcloud.com slash BioQuery. That's soundcloud.com slash B-I-O-Q-U-E-R-Y. Or by searching for BioQuery on Spotify. Thanks, as always, to the HP Video Game Podcast Network for having us on the network. We are, they are a great network full of video game podcasts. And if you like our show, you're sure to like some of theirs. They're coming at it from all different angles. And you can find all of those on Twitter at HPVG Pod Network. And thank you to you, our patrons, at patreon.com slash bsgpod. If you are one of our patrons at patreon.com slash bsgpod. Uh, that is how we pay for things like web hosting fees and, and all of the other things that go into keeping the lights on at the podcast where we have lights, I guess. Uh, and if you like the show and want to support it in a very direct and immediate way, Patreon is a great way to do that. That'll do it for us for this week. And we will talk to you again in two weeks time. Until then, goodbye. Goodbye, everybody. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. 
Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.